uh, we need to get into the teaching time for today. I hope you have your uh, Bible in front of you because you will need it. Uh, one of the things I am is I am fascinated with Jesus. He is, in the truest sense of the term, amazing. As a human being, uh, and as uh, Thomas would say, my Lord and my God. Uh, there's no person remotely as fascinating, and no one is amazing in comparison to Jesus of Nazareth. So today we're talking about the temptation uh, of Christ in the wilderness, and we're talking about how uh, amazing Jesus is. We're in Luke chapter 4 in the account of Jesus in the wilderness where he was 40 days being tempted by the devil. We all know what temptation is. Uh, I saw a friend's uh, Facebook uh, uh, news feed a couple of weeks ago, and it said, lead us not into temptation. Just tell us where it is. We'll find it. Uh, and uh, yeah, some of us, we can all relate to that, right? Uh, one of Job's friends, you remember the Old Testament, uh, Job and his three friends? His friend Eliphaz uh, put it this way. He said, as a man, um, man is born to trouble, as surely as the sparks fly upward. It's a sure thing. It's a certain thing. Now, when I refer to trouble on the one hand and temptation on the other hand, as I just did, I have an important reason for doing that. It's because the words translated trial and temptation or test and tempt in our English Bibles are the same word in the original languages, whether we're talking Hebrew or Greek. It's a fascinating thing, and it should cause us to wonder... Uh, how the English uh, translators knew how to translate which way, uh, or how we are supposed to differentiate to make sure that they got it right. And we are to differentiate. Um, that's made clear by James' emphatic statement that God never tempts anyone. That's chapter 1, verse 13 of James. So God never tempts us, but he does test us. And uh, it's the same word in the scriptures, but with two different intentions. And uh, it's that whole uh, thing like Joseph shared with his brothers in Egypt. God intended it for evil. Uh, you intended it, sorry, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Uh, so it's a matter of intent. And whether, we're, whether God's intentions are in view or whether Satan's intentions are in view, same word, two different meanings, two different motives. So what we're talking about today has a lot to do with how we interpret our circumstances, how we see our lives, um, and where we look for answers. Uh, where are you looking this morning? What do you have your eyes on? Uh, when you think about it, as paradoxical as it might seem, this actually makes a lot of sense. Everything involved in our human experience, whether we think of the things that we would consider good or the things that we could, would consider bad, uh, can, all of it, everything, can either make us or break us, depending on how we perceive it and how we receive it, or if you will, how we interpret it. Uh, in every trial, there is a temptation. But there's also an opportunity coming from God that he intends to grow us. And that includes, of course, these uh, circumstances that we're in today in this current pandemic 
and the multitude of circumstances created by it that we are currently living in. I would suggest to you that that makes the content of this uh, lesson uh, as practical as you can get. So this whole testing, tempting thing is front and center in our passage today where we see Jesus full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit and at the same time in the wilderness tempted by the devil. So let's get into that and uh, it's Luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 14. That's our main passage this morning and so we're going to read together uh, Luke 4, 1 to 14. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when, he had, uh, when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. I wonder if you might uh, pray with me this morning. Uh, Lord, as we consider these words from your sacred uh, text, we pray, Father, that you would help us to uh, receive from you what you have for us, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you provide it for us so that we can know you and so that we can know uh, what is involved in living our lives for you. Uh, We thank you for being our savior. We thank you for being our great example. And we pray that you would just undertake today to uh, speak to our hearts through your word, by your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk some context and storyline here. Luke 3 records the preparatory ministry of John and the baptism of Jesus. Then uh, Luke's next words in verse 23 of Luke 3, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Uh, So make the connections here because the connections are vital uh, to uh, understanding the storyline. So uh, at Jesus' public baptism by John, uh, uh, marking the beginning of his public life and ministry and mission, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit as the Christ or the Messiah. Now the term Christ is the Greek word 
which means anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. So whenever you see the word Christ or Messiah in scripture, that's the literal meaning of the word anointed one. Uh, that's right in your Bible, by the way. If uh, I can read to you uh, John chapter uh, 1, verse 40 and 41, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And then John adds in parentheses, which means Christ. So think a little bit more with me about this anointing, because it's really important. In biblical times, uh, olive oil was a critical symbol of blessing. It was a critical life staple. People used it for food, for healing, for light, for cosmetics, for incense. It had multiple, multiple purposes. It was so precious that they used it for commerce. Um, and in Old Testament days, prophets, priests, and kings were all ceremoniously uh, anointed with oil uh, at the beginning of their, their public ministries uh, in order to uh, ceremoniously launch them into uh, that ministry. So it's a symbol then of the anointing of the Holy Spirit for service, for blessing, for healing, for light, and for life in general. Uh, now think about those words from heaven in, um, in, uh, from uh, uh, Jesus' baptism. Uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then think about the Holy Spirit descending in that passage and uh, remaining, resting or remaining on Jesus, signifying him as the anointed one. Now drop your eyes down to chapter 4 of Luke. You might have to turn the page for that. But in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus is in Nazareth, look at, look at what uh, he says there from the book of Isaiah as he's reading in the synagogue there. Uh, verse 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, follow through here, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's the purpose of the anointing on Jesus of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of his life and mission. Now remember later when John, is, uh, John the Baptist is imprisoned by Herod, uh, that's right, the harbinger of Jesus in prison and even later beheaded. And so John is, at this time, he's in prison and he's wondering what's going on, right? He says, uh, he sends a couple of his messengers to Jesus and he says to uh, Jesus through these messengers, are you the one uh, to come or should we look for another? Yeah, I think you and I, if we were John, we would be sending the same message, wondering what's going on? You know, and but Jesus' response is really uh, significant. I'm reading from Luke chapter 7. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now you can either flip over, or you can just listen to me read and make a note for later. But I love what Peter said to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. 
uh, verses 34 to 38, Peter opened his mouth and he said, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Don't you just love those words? God was with him. Do you think that God was with Jesus? That the Father was with Jesus in the wilderness when he was being tempted by the devil? Well, it says there that uh, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And it says there that Jesus was led by the Spirit and the previous passage told us that the Spirit of God descended and rested and abided and remained upon him. So it's a rhetorical question. The only time I think when Jesus didn't experience uh, that kind of presence of the Father in his human experience here with us were those brief but seemingly eternal moments on the cross when Jesus hung there and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I realize we're still thinking about the context of our text, but these are important contextual explanations for the disclosing of the identity of Jesus at his birth, as a boy, uh, then at his baptism, declared to be the Son of God, the one who would come, the anointed one, uh, uh, the one upon whom the Spirit of God descended, anointing him as prophet, priest, and king, the prophet, the priest, the king. Uh, think about that anointing. In the Old Testament, as I mentioned, those prophets, priests, and kings were anointed uh, with, uh, with, with oil uh, to s- s- signify the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John the Baptist preaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus comes, the anointed one. He's the king. He's not only royalty, he is divine royalty. And here he is now presenting himself to the nation of Israel as prophet, priest, and king. Not only to Israel, but to the whole world. So following the baptism, stay with me here. So following the baptism and the anointing of the spirit and the voice from the father, the very next thing that happens in the narrative is today's text. And that's not what we would expect. It's the opposite of what we'd expect. Uh, The rabbinical scribes who in the centuries leading up to uh, Jesus' uh, uh, birth and life, uh, they were very prolific. They wrote uh, about seemingly every subject, including the Messiah they were waiting for, but they never envisioned anything like this. What does royalty look like in Luke chapter 4? What place does the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness have in the overall biblical storyline? It's a behind-the-scenes look at the suffering triumphs of Christ that reflected the reality of his entire human experience. For what purpose? Who's in control? Is this a test or a temptation 
or is it both? And what's it all about? Listen to these, uh, these words from BibleStudyTools.com, which, by the way, is a wonderful online resource. Um, it says, by far the most common term in the New Testament for test is uh, perezo, and it's cognates. The verb, verb, perezo, expresses the idea of trying in the sense of attempting something. But the overwhelming majority of uses denotes the testing of persons. And then they give some references for that. And then it goes on to say, those who emerge successfully from such testings are described as attested or approved. Jesus has been proclaimed by John the messenger and even the voice from heaven from the Father as the one, the anointed one, but now he will be put to the test. Because to be proved is to be approved. The word from heaven was that this was the one. But this is about a whole lot more than words now. The days of promises are over. He's here. And God will now prove what has been proclaimed. So come back to me to the main text, Luke chapter 4. If you are the Son of God, that's what the devil said. If you are the Son of God, that sounds like a challenge to me. When Jesus entered this world, he entered enemy territory. This world is hostile to God. I trust that you know that. Satan is the enemy of God and Jesus would later refer to him as the Prince of Peace, or Prince, yeah, right, right, Prince of Peace, wrong prince. The Prince of the world, the Prince of this world. Jesus referred to uh, Satan as the Prince of this world. And uh, experiencing human life in this world means experiencing hardship, because life is hard. It's a fallen world, right? But what about the Messiah? Would he be protected from the harder things? Even to this day, the Jews who believe their Messiah is yet to come, they don't know what to do with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God. Will the Messiah have a confrontation with the evil one? And what will that be like? He will crush him, right? Scripture says that. Maybe not in the way we think. And not until he has been mortally wounded by him. Jesus will be tested like everyone else, but tested like no other one. The sufferings that Jesus endured, our sufferings don't compare. The temptation, the trials that Jesus endured, yours and mine don't compare. Now, there are a number of biblical passages that you should mull over as you study these 15 verses as we're, we're making our way through the, our journey through the Bible in over a three-year period. Um, there's a number of, uh, of, of cross-references you, you should consider. Genesis 1, 2, 3, of course. Uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, coming out of the context of the travel, the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness, um, which 
you will see if you haven't already, are very pertinent to this passage. The book of Job, especially Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the book of James in the New Testament, especially James chapter 1 and James chapter 4. Uh, if you go there, you'll see why those are important cross-references. And the book of Hebrews. Let me read for you from the book of Hebrews. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, in reference to the Messiah, Jesus, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I'd say that's very pertinent. And then over in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 15, 14 and 15, says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For, he, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's full of pertinent information, isn't it? Another uh, important cross-reference would be 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The first, uh, 12, uh, first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uh, re- refers back to the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness and how Israel failed the test there. And then in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he makes this statement that's actually probably quite well-known statement among Christians at least. He says, No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now we like to skip to the part about escaping the temptation there, right? And sometimes we miss the fact that it's actually teaching that we escape through. That's why he says, uses the word endure. Um, But don't miss the first part of his statement in, in that verse. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. All of us have trials. All of us have troubles. And sometimes we look around and we, and we say, you know what, lots of people have it worse than I do. But a lot of the time, if we're honest, our eyes are fixed somewhere else. And it's more like nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Like, you don't know what it's like. I have to fight the temptation. Speaking of temptation, I have to fight the temptation to sing now. You know, you don't know what it's... No, I won't do that. It's one of our favorite mantras, though, isn't it? You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. Oh, yeah. It's easy for you to say, you don't know what it's like. (laughs) Yeah. We really like to think we're, we're that special somehow. And we don't tend to realize that what we have in common is the common ground on which all of our battle 
is fought. We need to think hard about that. So getting back to the text, it's interesting, isn't it, to consider in these days how isolation was a big part of the temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. The first man, Adam, was tempted in this beautiful garden, enjoying all that was good with only one restriction in place. But Jesus is no, in no garden. This is a place of want. This is the Judean wilderness. And I've seen the Judean wilderness. And it is desolate without reprieve. Forty days, forty nights. The forty days are undoubtedly intended to correspond with the forty years of wandering in the wilderness of Old Testament Israel. Uh, that's not speculation. Because uh, there's a few reasons why we know that, that, that we're supposed to draw that parallel. One thing is that the three r- responses that Jesus gives to Satan, all three of them, uh, when he quotes scripture each time, uh, which is significant in and of itself, but it's also significant that all three times Jesus quotes from the wandering, wilderness wandering passages of the book of Deuteronomy. And Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 3 quotes Psalm 95 in reference to those days of wanderings and calls them the day of testing. So you will recall how Israel failed miserably. But now it's Jesus. And the overall point of this passage, just to make sure that we get it, is that Jesus triumphs over temptation and over the devil where all others failed. That's the main point of the text, that Jesus is the one who would conquer sin, hell, and death and defeat the devil in the doing of it. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other things that we can learn, multiple things that we can learn from this passage that will help us deal with temptation because there, there, are, there are some great, some important principles for us in here. Um, just mentioning the fact that Jesus quoted scripture each time, that's got to be significant. Um, but, but, here, but here's the thing. Before Jesus is our example, he is first our Savior. We should never forget that. That's a biblical priority. We could talk about different things. We could talk about how those three individual temptations here in Luke 4 uh, correlate with the three temptations of Adam and Eve uh, and the forbidden fruit in in the garden, which when they saw that the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. And we could cross-reference that to the Apostle John's statement where he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But before we start dividing up this passage into pieces, let's seek to appreciate the whole of it. Because I don't think the answer to temptation is found in as much in our understanding its different forms as it is in recognizing the one who is Lord over all and who says to us that everything we need we find in him.
for every single one of us, the answer is not found in us. It's found in him. So before we look at the differences, look at the commonalities. Jesus is alone. He's hungry. He's tired. He's extremely uncomfortable. 40 days is a long time. And there's not one of us that doesn't know what it's like to be alone, what it's like to be tired, what it's like to be uncomfortable. Maybe you've never gone any period of time without food, but most of us know what it's like to be hungry. Every one of the things that Jesus suffered as a temptation is something that we are utterly tempted by too. I refer you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Why is that so important? And I think part of the reason is because the big answer is the same for every single one of us. Oh, we're different, all right. And some of us are more different than others. Um, and no two of our life circumstances is the same either. However, we must learn this together, that the stuff that distinguishes us personally is only the window dressing. That's not to say it's none of it's important. I'm just saying they don't compare with what we have in common because Jesus Christ wants to be your Savior and my Savior, and there's not a person listening to my voice today that Jesus doesn't feel the same way about. Verse 13, it says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he, par he departed from him until an opportune time. If you're interested in adverbial clauses or Greek participles, uh, which I'm sure you are, right? They uh, suggest that Jesus was tempted the whole time and that, that these three uh, temptations uh, spelled out here at the end, uh, that's just when Satan threw the book at him. And it didn't end there either, right? It says the devil left him until an opportune time. King James has for a season. Here's the thing. Jesus' entire life, his entire human experience was one big test. Right through to his triumphant end, the triumph of the cross. Listen to these words from Paul, Colossians chapter 2. He, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here in this passage of Luke 4, we are given a glimpse behind the curtain, as it were, almost like the book of Job. I'm convinced that rather than an exceptional time in Jesus' life, this time of temptation is positioned in the narrative as it is, uh, as a look behind the scenes of Jesus' entire life. Uh, this is the significance of it being placed where it's placed. At the very beginning, before anything else, at the very beginning of his public life and, uh, and ministry, because it's the story of his life. Here, he hasn't done any public teaching at this point. He hasn't done a single miracle. Reference John 2.11. And Satan is on him. And he might come and he might go, because he does that, right? 
But Jesus' entire life was one big test. Show me, a, show us a sign, show us a sign, Jesus, show us a sign. Do you ever think Jesus was tempted to say, I'll show you a sign, all right? <laughs> I'm sure he was. Matthew chapter 17, we have these words from Jesus. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Think about Matthew 16. Peter makes this great declaration about who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Christ. And then it says, from that time forward, Jesus began to talk with them about how he would be betrayed and handed over and crucified. And then the text says that Peter takes Jesus and he begins to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. And then the text says that Jesus turns to Peter and says, this is verse 23 of Matthew 16, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And of course, there's Gethsemane, where the Savior sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And prayed, not my will, but thine be done. Do you think the Father was with him there? What about the devil? Do you think the devil was with him there? The devil said to Jesus, uh, you know, cast yourself down for his angels will bear you up. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Don't you understand? I could call 12 legions of angels. At the end of the passage in Matthew 4, that's the correlated passage of the temptation, uh, uh, Luke 4. Matthew 4.11 says angels came and were ministering to him. You know, the Matthew 16 passage is, is particularly helpful. Uh, the Matthew 16 passage I referenced where Peter calls uh, Jesus to, uh, aside to rebuke him. Well, he doesn't call him aside. He rebukes him right in front of all the others. And, uh, but it's helpful because Jesus says there that, you know, that, that you, you, know, you, you savor not the things of God, but the things of men. You, it's, it's like you're trying to divert me away from the purpose of God for my life. And I want to ask you this morning, is that not what temptation is? Is it not uh, the temptation to be diverted away from God's purpose for our lives as we live for God? I want to try to, try to finish up. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here's the main point of the message this morning, and the main point of the text, Jesus. What we need is not so much some insight into our uh, insight into temptation or uh, some uh, methodology for dealing with different types of temptations. These types of things have their place. But our greatest need is to find all we need in Jesus. Uh, let me say this, as cagey as you might be, as much of something as you might think you are, you are no match for the devil. And if you think you are, then you're playing the part of a fool. 
There's one Savior. One Messiah. One who has the power. The only way that you and I share in that is when we find it in him. He's the bread of heaven. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the one who bears us up. He's the one who can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I want to read one more passage with you, which I think is an important commentary on this whole passage here as we understand the reason for its inclusion in Scripture and its place within the narrative of the, the, the uh, uh, narrative of redemption, the, the, the story of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the good news. Romans 8, familiar passage, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He, did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, listen to this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, uh, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does his presence mean to you? How does he minister to you? God is at work in your life. He's blessing you. And you might say, I've had three major trials in my life this week. Where's the blessing of God in that? But God is not only working in our lives, he invites us to work with him in our lives. He even calls us co-workers. How well are we cooperating with him? God uses the hard things. What's my part? That would be learning to trust him. Learning how to live in dependence upon him. Submitting my life to him. Jesus conquered through submitting to God. Learning to become a better person for the glory of Christ. We can look into the nature of these temptations. But the answer is not found in the temptations. Can I suggest today that we need to lift our eyes? Because that's what happens a lot of times, isn't it? We get our eyes in the wrong places. Introspection is a good thing, but it's not what saves us. I think about those passages I read in Hebrews earlier. He went through all that so that you and I could come to him. Have you come to him? And we come over and over and over. We come constantly to him. I know that. But if you come to him, he endured all he endured so that you and I could come to him and have our needs met because he is the way maker. We're going to 
finish up, as Josh mentioned uh, earlier, we're going to finish up today with a song. But just before we sing uh, together, I want to pray with you. And I would ask you, if you would, pray, pray with me this morning. Lord, I thank you for each person that has walked through this passage, some with us together this morning. And so right now, Lord, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is your anointed, that he is prophet, priest, and king, the prophet, the priest, and the king. We thank you that he came to uh, bring the good news to the poor and to heal the lame and the blind and to set the captives free. We thank you, Lord, that he defeated sin, hell, and death, and that he did it by defeating the devil. We thank you, Lord, that he is our victorious, triumphant Lord and Savior. And I just pray right now, Lord, that anyone who might be watching and listening this morning, who has not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, who has not come to you, Lord Jesus, as Savior, not just as example, but as Savior, as the one in whom all we need is found, the one who triumphed for us, the one who came for us, the one who lived for us, the one who suffered for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose again from the grave and lives forever to ever intercede for us. Lord, I pray that even right now, men and women and young people would come to you, Lord Jesus, and receive you as their Savior and Lord even now, by faith, by simply saying, yes, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have failed miserably in my life like every single other person except one. And I pray that you would take me and make me your own, that Jesus Christ would be my Savior. I receive him now as my Savior, my Lord, my champion, my victor. And I give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.